Okay, we're back, and we're going to be diving into this series, This Is Momentum. Now, this is a culture-building series for us. This is a vision series for us. We're looking at who God is calling us to be as a church community and anchoring it in Scripture. And you guys, I will tell you from the jump that I can't do this one without you. What we know about culture is this, to build a culture, you got to be a culture. And what I simply mean is this, I could be up here talking till I'm blue in the face about how we got to love people, how we want to serve Jesus, the way we want to pursue him, the things we want to do, the way, what, the, the things that we want people to feel when they're around momentum people. But here's the deal, I can't just talk about it. It's something that we each have to lean into and live into. And when we do so, we become a tribe. We become a community with a unique shared set of values that is here in Jesus' name to make a difference. So we're reviewing this every single week because this is the one thing we want to get right. It's our mission. Here at Momentum, our mission, so military people, you might get this. We have a mission as a church. It is to help people because it's all about helping people. It is to help people meet Jesus, know Jesus, and make the world better and brighter in Jesus' name. Now, here's what I want you to do. Wherever you are, I want you to just get loud, okay? You're in the car, you're at a coffee shop, you're in your living room, wherever you may be, you got to help me by saying these underlined words with me. Our mission is to help people meet Jesus, know Jesus, and make the world better and brighter in Jesus' name. Okay, that was pathetic, and some of you didn't even say it, but I'm just going to keep rolling, okay? I want to pray as we get going, and then we'll dive in. God and Father, there's no one like you. Take this message, take your word, bring it to life in our hearts. Let it fuel us and move us to be the men and women that you've called us to be. God, bind us together as a church family. May we do something beautiful in this city, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the question. What do you say? What do you say when you're born at just the right place, at just the right time, in just the right tribe, with just the right resources? What do you say when your family names you Saul because you're a Benjaminite and the most famous Benjaminite of all time was the great King Saul and they want you to live a life similar to his? What do you say when you've grown up in the greatest Greek universities, you speak and write in Latin, Aramaic, and Greek? What do you say when you're actually a Jewish person but a Roman citizen because, you know, when Rome stripped citizenship away from everybody about four years, 14 years ago, if you had the name or the fame or the money, you you could make it and you could retain your citizenship and you did. I'm guessing it's because your family had all three. What do you say when you are hand selected by the great rabbi Gamaliel and chosen for his specific mentorship in his rabbinic school? What do you say when you pass rabbinic school with flying colors? You're the top of your class. What do you say when you follow the word of Moses to a T? You have memorized the first five books of the Bible word for word. You're the youngest Jewish man to earn a seat on the Supreme Court. You actually get to write Talmud. It is the amendments and addendums to the law. It is one step down from actually writing law like Moses did. What do you do when in Judea there's this uprising of Jews who are saying, we don't find our righteousness in the law of Moses anymore. We've been given a righteousness through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What do you do when in that meeting at that Supreme Court, everybody looks at you and they want you to do something about it? So you do. 
You're equipped with the authority of your ruling council. You've got a garrison of guards who follow you around and you're going home to home, village to village, finding where these Jesus followers claim to be and, and you're taking men and women out of their homes and throwing them in a prison. You see little kids cry as you drag dad away with the guards as you're trying to give them one last kiss. You smile when you see this. You were there the day that this apostle named Stephen was preaching the gospel. You had him drug away and thrown down into a pit. Large stones were thrown on top of this man until he laid there lifeless and you were there giving your approval. What do you say when you're going about your business ready to stomp out the name of Jesus and just outside Damascus you're riding your horse into town and you're hit by a bright light so bright, so forceful and powerful that you fall backwards off your horse. In the minute you're in the presence of perfect power, perfect love. You feel it flowing through every cell of your body. There's a light, there's a person behind this light. And this person says, I am Jesus who you've been persecuting. You've never felt so loved and so terrified at the same time. What do you do when in an instant you realize everything that you've been trying to tear down you now must build and everything you have built for yourself, it is time to tear down. So you go into hiding and some apostles adopt you and you go back looking over all of your scriptures and your Torah and your Old Testament and you realize that every verse, every passage, every law, every command, every hero was just pointing to this Jesus that you were trying to do away with. What do you do when you realize that in him is the life and grace and fulfillment that you've been looking for your whole life? What do you do when you give your life to serving the one that you once tried to destroy? You go around the Mediterranean rim planting churches. What do you say when this new life as a church planter gets you arrested by Romans and thrown in jail in Rome? What do you say when you're on death row for spreading the name and fame of the Messiah that you once tried to erase from history? We actually know what you say because we have it in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Chapter 1, he opens his letter and he says, Oh, don't worry about me. I'm in chains, but the gospel's not chained. As a matter of fact, Roman guards are coming to know about this Jesus who's changed everything about me. Verse chapter 2, he says, Oh, whatever you do, have the same attitude as Jesus. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, so he came down and he served. And in the same way, you need to serve the world around you. And then chapter 3, he unloads some words for us that propel us forward. If our mission is to know Jesus, there is meaning about what it means and how we live into a true relationship with him in Philippians 3 verse 4. He says, If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Oh, but whatever were my gains, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, that come, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Oh, I want to know. Christ. There's our language. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, 
the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. So much meaning and so much about what it means to actually know Jesus personally in these words. All my note people, here's where you can start. My supreme calling is to know Jesus in a personal relationship. My supreme calling. You stack up what all of this amounts to and what is the gospel calling me to? What does the gospel say for this church family? What should we be aiming at? What's our end zone? It is that we would know Jesus personally in relationship. I want you to go back into Paul's words with me. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard of Pharisees, zeal, perfect, all this stuff, all faultless. Here's what he's saying. I went to the top of religious activity mountain. I've seen the summit. I've read my Bible. I've memorized it. I've served. I've given. I've reached the top of religious achievement. If there is one that God could be pleased with, it's me. But listen to what he says after having an encounter with Jesus. Whatever were my gains, you guys, I now consider them a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. Now, Paul leans into two big word pictures here. The first one is that of a scale. He's talking about gains and losses. And he says, on this scale, on one side, you could put all of my achievements, church attendance, service projects, tithes and offerings I've given, how good I've been, the laws that I've kept, the things that I've done for God, the faith that you've shared with other, others, the hours that you've spent serving. And he says, trust me, I have piled this side of the scale high, but you set relationship with Jesus on this side. It goes sinking to the bottom because it is so much more worthy, rich and powerful and heavy than anything that I think I could do to to impress God. He says, oh, it is total loss compared to the worth of knowing Christ. And Paul will also draw on another unique image here. Verses 7 and 8, he says, Whatever is to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, consider it all lost to the worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Savior. Um, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. And I don't want to be crass, but I will tell you, this is the closest thing we find to a cuss word in all of Scripture. He didn't borrow this word here from the high society uh, religious institutions that he ran around with. He didn't borrow this word from the Hellenistic universities where he was educated and the reform schools he got in. Oh, he borrowed this word from the good old boys and the carpenters that used to know how to cuss and spit around back of the job sites. This word translated is a scubola. If, uh, if we're speaking another language, uh, you could say excrement. You could say caca. If you grew up on construction sites like I did, and when two boys are looking at a deal and discussing the terms that they're going to agree to and what the contractor's offering them and it's a bad offer, well, they would say, well, this is just horse manure. But they wouldn't say manure. 
And that is what Paul brings in. He, he, he needed a word to describe what it's like to achieve a bunch of religious activity and not have a relationship with God at the same time. Now, some of you get this because you grew up watching a marriage that was just horrendous. There were two people doing things that married people should do, but there was no relationship. They woke up in the same bed, ate breakfast at the same table, sat in the same bleachers at your games and watched them together, went on the same vacations, watched the same TV shows at night, ate the same scoop of ice cream out of the same little thing together before they went to bed, and they did it over and over and over again, doing all kinds of things that married people do, but the relationship between them was non-existent. And you would call that marriage crap. Paul says the same thing. A faith... It's not about doing all the right things. He calls it so much deeper than that. He says it's about knowing Jesus. It's to have an encounter with him. It is that word intimacy. Into me you see. That he would see into who you are. That you would share your life with him. That you would participate in day-to-day -day living. That he would be on your heart. That he would be on your mind. That he wouldn't be a box you check or a place you go on Sunday. But there would be a vibrant, life-giving, abiding relationship between the two of you. He's talking about something so much deeper than going to church on Sundays or visiting the Outcry Tour when they come to town and staying up to date on the latest Christian books and podcasts. He's talking about something deep. And I think this is a good time to remind you there is a difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing Him and having encountered Him and knowing Him personally. A pastor I know said it so well when he talked about an experience he had in college. He was doing a group lab. If you know what a group lab is in college, uh, group labs are usually about groups of five people, four of whom could care less about the task at hand and the work that you have to do. And he said, I quickly found out that the other four people were in fact those four people, but there was something about this project that grabbed a hold of my heart. It was, uh, they were assigned different places of geological interest. He was doing a, a geography class because as far as the sciences went, he didn't want to mess with physics, but geography he could do. And everybody was given a different point of geological interest and they get Mount Rainier in Washington and Mount Rainier is just this incredible mountain because yeah it's 14,000 and some odd feet but the other thing about Rainier is it rises from zero uh, zero feet above sea level, meaning some mountains are this tall, but they start out a mile high. This one comes from sea level 14,000 feet in the air and it just looms over everything. He says he gets so into Rainier, he actually takes the topographic maps home from college. They had never had anybody say, hey, can I take the maps? But he took the maps and he rolled them out on the floor and he got into Mount Rainier. And, and you know, it comes to tell you it is a perfect volcanic cone and it's 14,411 feet high and it's so big. And what it does is it creates its own weather around it and all this stuff. And, and so he gets into, he, he becomes totally swept into Rainier. So much so he walks in on test day, cocky. The teacher slides him a test. And he's disappointed because it only has 10 multiple choice questions on it. And then one little fill in the blank at the bottom. And so at the end of his test, he flipped the paper over and in tiny writing says, here are some things I know about Mount Rainier that you did not ask on this test. 
And he fills the back of the paper with the test and turns it in and gets an A plus, 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 and, and life's good. So later, as that semester ended, he, he planned a road trip with a friend in summer. And they leave from Chicago, they head through the Pacific Northwest, seeing everything there is to see, and on their route is Mount Rainier. And, you know, he'd been talking up Rainier this whole time. He'd never seen it before, but the two guys in this car, one of whom is this pastor I know, and he's telling his friend, hey, wait till we get to Rainier. I'll tell you everything you need to know about Rainier. And so they find this place that you're looking at on the screen, which is Paradise Point, which is believed to be one of the best places to see Rainier. And oddly enough, Rainier actually usually clouds out the sky and massed in the fog, but they find it on a day like this where the sky is blue. And so they walk up to the little viewing deck and they uh, the guy now just begins to launch into telling his friend about Rainier and all of a sudden he's completely caught off guard when he breaks down weeping. Because the encounter with Rainier was so much more powerful, so much more intimate, so much more breathtaking than simply learning about Rainier in a classroom you guys, Paul is calling us to this kind of faith. We want to be a church that pursues knowing Jesus personally and intimately. Not settling for Jesus' facts. Not settling for just going the right places. I want you to be people, men and women, who know him. I want people to stand up at your funeral and say, She knew Jesus she walked with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. When I got around that group of people, it felt like I was getting around Jesus because it was clear in that community they knew him. Because that is the faith that we're called to. Now, how do we get there? What does that look like for us? Well, we've talked about this and we're going to keep talking about this. In culture, it's always people like us do things like these. So if we are a church that is committed to getting out of the kiddie pool and into the deep things of God, how do we do that? I'll give you three real quick. Number one, it's this, be planted in the house of the Lord. Psalm 92 is a verse we're going to be leaning into as we move forward, and it says, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They'll grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. Now, I don't know if you grew up around church or been around church stuff. I've been around church stuff for some time now. And I've heard about these darn cedars of Lebanon for ages. And I was like, what is the deal? Why are cedars of Lebanon, like, always spoke about, like, what, would they have some good fertilizer in Lebanon? Did they, was it nice in there? Were they good trees? And, like, I, I couldn't take it anymore this week. I was like, what the heck is the deal? Here's a cedar of Lebanon. You can actually go see them. There are some still around to this day, but... He, the long and short of it is this, these, the lumber that they produce is extremely valuable. On top of that, the Mediterranean has some extreme highs and lows as far as climate goes. There can be droughts, there can be rainy seasons. But the cedars of Lebanon can grow in and out of the droughts, in and out of the rainy, rainy seasons, because of their root system. So if you jump back to 92 for me, he's talking about these trees. He's talking about a faith that is deeply rooted and it's flourishing. But he points something out. There is a place where this happens. 
planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. Being planted has a place. Deep faith has a place associated with it. It is when you are rooted deeply within the life of a church. Jesus did not make you to be a Lone Ranger Christian. There are no orphans in the family of God. You are called to be planted in the house of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? I want to make it as clear as possible. For us, it's four things. Number one, we, we, this is planted in the, this is like our wildest dream for you when it comes to participating in this church family. Number one, you're practicing holy habits regularly. Our good friend, and <laughs> he's becoming Momentum's grandpa, uh, Dr. J.K. Jones, always comes once a year to remind us about holy habits about time in prayer, time in scripture, time fasting, time with God, time breaking away, time making sure your soul's okay, times of rest, times of replenishing, times of spiritual discipline. We want every single Momentum family member to have regular holy habits practice, serving regularly in a ministry. Again, we can hook you up. Uh, grouping at least three by five. Now, this is new. This is the back end of COVID. This is we are more busy than we've ever been. And we've been looking at groups and saying, hey, we don't want you to have to give a semester of your life. Three times a year, we want you to give five weeks where you're in a group. A group that's specifically focused on biblical, biblical community and discipleship and growing your faith more deeply. Three times a year, we want you to do a five-week run. And then four, if you have kids, we want you to keep them regularly engaged in their ministry. Because this time in their life matters. We want you to be planted in the house of the Lord. Two, I want you to embrace a daily faith. This is interesting. I, I got to speak out of both sides of my mouth. Do I want you guys coming back to church? Do I want a relaunch to go good? Absolutely. But I cannot do a disservice and tell you that God's dream for your life and great faith is just showing up at church on Sundays. When we read these words, we get a vision for a daily faith. Verse 8 and 9, What is more, I consider everything lost to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For whose sake I lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. If you do the language work in this passage, if you do the what's going on in this passage, you see that he's talking about this state of being. If you need me, I will be found in Jesus. The best I can do to describe this to you is tell you about a new phenomenon that is ripping through our house called Beyblades. Uh, I don't know if you've done Beyblades before, but it's not that big. It is a top that is about this big, hooks into a little contraption. You pull a rip cord, it comes falling out of the contraption, spinning a million miles an hour. You drop it into this little stadium. You do two of them, these two Beyblades battle. My son Bear is obsessed with Beyblades. All day in our house, we hear the noise of zip, boom, zip, boom, zip, boom. And he zips a little thing on it, hits a little battlefield, and they play, 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 play. And here's what I'm saying. Bear can be found playing Beyblades. He can be found doing Beyblades thing. If we don't hear the little zip, boom, we know to go three doors down to his buddy Gio's house because he can be found in their garage playing Beyblades with Gio. He can be found. It is his life. You can find him doing Beyblades things. When Paul is saying, I can be found in Christ, he's saying, I can be found doing Jesus things. I can be found pursuing Jesus. I can be found spending time like Jesus, living like Jesus, parenting like Jesus, doing my vocation like Jesus would do it. I can be found leaning into Jesus. I can be found taking my problems to Jesus. I can be found 
leaning into the things that Jesus wants me to do. I can be found talking to Jesus. I can be found living like Jesus. I can be found shining a light for Jesus. And my friends, this is not a Sunday morning thing. Oh, Sunday is here to fuel you. It is a place where we can come together, we can worship, and we can be replenished. But it is not just watching the service online week after week. He is calling us to a life that is deeply connected to the life of Christ. That is to be found in Him. And finally, people like us, what do we do? We find the fellowship. And I'm just going to say something supernatural. I try to make things as practical as I possibly can when I do this. But I got to end unapologetically supernatural. Paul goes on in verse 10 to say these words. He goes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And he says this I want to connect to Jesus through suffering like he has. He says, I want to take the most gritty, hard parts of my life and allow them to push me to Jesus. When he talks about the fellowship of his sufferings, he's not only talking about the cross, but he's talking about Jesus stepping out of heaven onto earth where there's sweat and tears and bruises and toil and let, set, setbacks and let down, letbacks. There's letdowns and setbacks. There's all kinds of things that we go through. And he's saying something supernatural happens when you go through something and you're like, Jesus, I'm going through something. And you can hear him say, I get it. I've been there too. And in an instant, there is a bond that happens. There is a supernatural power that is bro breaks loose in your life through those moments. You go, I've been abused. Jesus says, I have too. I feel like I'm under so much pressure right now. And Jesus says, I've been there too. I don't know what's coming next. Jesus says, I remember what that was like. And you draw close to him, not only through the things you've been through, but the things you will go through. And you experience a life-giving hope and connection with Jesus through them. My friends, that is the kind of knowing I'm talking about. It is a call to get out of the kiddie pool of attendance and rule following and jump into the ocean and experience the depths of a life of knowing Jesus. That's it for us today, you guys. We love you. Just to remind you, we're back Montevai at 10 a.m. Can't wait to see you there. We'll see you next week. Peace.